Ita Luigi here. Uh, welcome to Vukcast. Let's go. Ho ho. Hello, it's the Vukcast, Australia's Nintendo podcast. I'm Stephen. This is episode number one hundred and seventy-seven. I'm here with my lovely friend Chris to fall down a well. How are you, Chris? What's going on? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty well. Uh, I'm quite keen to fall down the well with you. Fall down a well, you might, you know, chase the horizon while you're in the well and see what the story is inside the well. And uh, I don't know how to integrate screen sheet into this, but we're going to talk about lots of games today. <laughs> um, yeah, Chris has been on a reviewing, just like, he's just been on fire with reviews. I've reviewed one game because I've been less on fire, but I'm still happy about it. Um, but yeah, I thought we'd have a chat about the games that we've been reviewing pretty recently, pick Chris's brain to see what's going on. Um, so... If you're okay with it, let's have a start with Screen Cheat. I'm, I've played this a little tiny bit, so my understanding with Screen Cheat is that it's basically your characters are invisible and you have to, like, it, when I was when I was younger, it was called screen looking. I've heard it called screen hacking. Screen cheating mm. I'd never heard until this game came out, but I guess it's probably the most clear of what's actually, you know, what you're actually doing. Um so yeah, uh, give me an idea. What's what's screen sheet like, and yeah, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. And like like yourself, screen hacking is probably the term I'm most familiar with. But uh, screen cheat is essentially, as the title suggests, you've got to cheat by looking at uh, your other opponent's screens. Because a screen sheet made by Samurai Punk is an Australian-made game, and it's a local multiplayer first-person shooter where. Uh, as with the classic local uh, local multiplayer shooters, your screen is broken up into sections, and yeah, you've got to hunt down your opponents by looking at their respective screens and trying to figure out where they are, so you can try uh, quite often in vain to line up a shot and uh, rack up them kill points. Uh, because as you say, uh, everyone is invisible; you, you can't see your opponents on your screen, and you can't even really see their physical representations on their screen either, but just based on what they're looking at, what their surrounds and what their environments look like around them, you've got to make a pretty estimated guess as to where they are and try and uh, line up your shot or whatever weapon you're using to, yeah, to, to rack up points. And uh, like, like a lot of shooters, uh, there are lots of different game modes. So there's a, a classic... Um, uh, what do you call it, a deathmatch, where uh, it's essentially first to five or ten or however many kills you want to set it up to. Uh, the first to get to that wins. Uh, then there are other modes like a, a gold rush sort of thing where you've got to collect coins around the, the mat that you're playing on and if you, get, uh, if you get killed, then you drop a whole bunch of coins and by the end of the time limit, whoever's carrying the most coins wins. Then, of course, there's a classic you know, king of the hill sort of thing where you've got to oh, try course, and hold a point. Uh, so, yeah, there's um, yeah, there's there's lots lots of uh, variety in the game, uh, but yeah, it, it all gravitates around that centre hook of everyone's invisible. You've got to cheat by looking at each other's screens. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious about those extra modes. I've only ever played all of maybe five minutes of it. At was it was at like a. Uh, gaming event, gaming bar sort of place. It was just a whole bunch of random people around the TV playing screen sheets. So I was like, cool, I'll, I'll jump on for the next one. So I only, only really played the basic, you know, first to X kills deathmatch, but I'm really curious about King of the Hill because I guess that would make this a little more interesting and in that you have a rough mm. idea that if someone's controlling the hill, they're probably in this physical area. And so that might make, 
you know, it's it's always a chaotic mood because it's always concentrated around a certain point. But I imagine that would make it even, I don't know, more interesting is that you can't see them, but you have a rough idea, just go absolutely hog wild shooting there and hope for the best. Yeah, definitely. And I, I would say from my experience playing the game that King of the Hill was one of my favourite modes because of that very fact, because the only way to uh, rack up points uh, or... Uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. It's been a few weeks since I've played it, but I think it was sort of each player had a countdown timer that would only tick down when you occupied the the space, the the hill, as it were, that you're trying to be the king or queen or whatever of. Mm. Um, the monarch. So, yeah, yeah, the, the, the monarchy, the, you know, the archaic leadership system or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> of the, the hill. Yeah, of of the hill or mountainous terrain or you know, all that sort of stuff. We're we're getting into semantics, uh, but um, yeah, it's 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 really cool because when you're trying to you know claim whatever spot on the map is the hill at that particular point, which is represented by sort of a a circle, uh, is that you're, you're pretty well painting a target on your back because. Everyone knows where you are. Uh, everyone has an indication or a, a marker pointing towards where the hill is, so you can try and take it and score points for yourself. So as soon as someone's occupying that space, all of a sudden the the murky invisibility of where everyone is becomes uh, much, much clearer. And uh, I know when when I was playing it with Laura, she rather enjoyed using a, a loadout where... Uh, the the weapon was this stuffed teddy bear that had been packed with uh, bars of dynamite. Yeah, please uh, tell me about that. I saw it in one of your screenshots. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, okay, that's that's an interesting weapon. How how does this work? <laughs> it's a rather rather sadistic explosive, uh, as you could no doubt tell by the screen. That yeah, it's it's essentially a, a bit of a uh, a grenade uh, that is okay. that is your uh, that is your weapon. Um, <laughs> each of the loadouts you can choose uh, a weapon, um, and that is your only weapon. It's not like you can cycle between. Okay, I've got a gun, and this teddy bear is going to be my grenade or whatever. That that is your primary weapon. Um, oh, okay, so, yes, yes. So yeah, so Laura using this uh, teddy bear with dynamite proved to be rather effective with King of the Hill <laughs> because it had you know a decent bit of area of effect damage. So she'd pretty, you know, be able to safely bet that okay, if I throw this into the uh, the hill, then I'll uh, more likely than not hit my hit my target and be able to waltz in and claim some points for myself. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty pretty hectic mayhem, and yeah, a really really good fun local multiplayer game. Yeah. It almost sounds like those area of effect weapons might be the best way to go because I guess if you can't see enemies it's gonna be really difficult to like make precision shots as i when i what little i played was very just like spray and pray so Mm. it was there a downside to the like area of effect explosion ones or was it just i don't know you yeah you hit them and like did was it an instant kill if it got any damage yeah Yeah, what was the deal i don't i don't think i don't think there was a a real downside or you know not that i'm an expert on screen sheet meta or anything like that but i i don't (laughs) feel like the, the area of effect was too great that it felt like uh, it was overly advantageous over other weapons. Uh, okay. uh, because, as as you say, there is a certain spray and pray element to screen sheet, but pretty well all of the weapons 
generally have a relatively wide, um, uh, you know, a relatively wide range because the, right. the 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 base weapon is sort of like a shotgun, which you know has, as with shotguns in most games, it tends to sort of spray uh, spray its um, uh, damage over a, a reasonably wide arc. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's essentially you know if if you get hit by a weapon. You're dead. It's no, you know, shots to where limbs would be would do less damage, or you need to get a uh, headshot okay. to confirm the kill. It's you know, if you hit someone at all, they are dead, sort of thing. Right. Which, um, which mix that with the difficulty of trying to hit someone while they are invisible. It's I I, f- I feel like it's a pretty good balance. Although yeah, I'm, I guess if like yeah. you're struggling to hit them at all, it's nice that you don't have to like hit them a whole bunch of times for it to actually matter. You'd kind of want it to be a one and done deal in that case. Yeah, absolutely. And Screen Cheat really specialises in you know, short, quick uh, game game sessions and rounds. Uh, none of the rounds take overly long to complete. I mean, there's lots of customization, so you can change the uh, change the target uh, points for winning, or however many kills to win, or whatever time limit there is. So you can you know modify games to suit whatever your house rules are, but I feel like everything felt, you know, relatively quick. It was pretty, pretty breezy and relatively easy to play uh, in terms of, you know, pick up and play. You know, trying to hunt down uh, invisible enemies is not terribly straightforward, but it's, you know, it's a relatively basic game. You don't have to master complex controls or worry about fighting the game physics or anything. It all feels, you know, pretty breezy, pretty simple, and the fact that rounds are quite quick lends itself to to good uh you know short sharp and shiny fun bursts of uh, multiplayer i think one thing i noticed during my short time with it was that the map design was particularly important because you're more like relying on what you see like landmarks in the map to determine where people are rather than you know being able to actually track a person or any like evidence of where they've been I only ever played the most basic map, which from memory was just like some brightly coloured sort of quadrant so you could get a rough idea where people were. Were mm. there? I assume there's a whole bunch of other maps. Do they follow the same like bright colour sort of uh, setup or are there different landmarks and things to, to help you pinpoint where people are without being able to physically see them? Yeah, definitely. And that, that forms a large component of screen cheat and that's that's how you are able to get a reasonable idea of where your opponents are is that each of the maps do feature it's sort of you know broken up into primary colors or you know very very distinct different colors uh, in different sections so that if you see on an opponent's screen okay they're surrounded by blue you know bright blue walls okay i've got a general idea of where that is and then there are Little little giveaways and little landmarks, uh, like doorways or little um, you know little environmental details. Like there might be a potted plant in the corner of a particular room, and if you see someone walk past that, then you think, okay, I've got a general idea of where they are. So if I follow that path and shoot wildly, I may hit them. <laughs> shoot wildly seems like a common theme here. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of if. And, and and maybe it does. Maybe I I just haven't seen it. But if the game did track shot accuracy, my goodness, <laughs> it would be very very low, be lower very, than very what it normally is for me playing it. shooters. Yeah, well, I mean, it's somewhat to be expected, but it would be fun to see. Just like you hit one out of how many shots? 
like yes. 300 shots yes. who knows yeah yeah I mean, that that, w- that would fit with the, the tone of screen sheet rather well because it does have this very uh it's almost uh you know it's a bit of a, a meme factory in that it's got it's got a compilation of all these pop culture icons and memes uh, that it references all the way throughout uh, that I mentioned in the review, it creates a lot of very, very interesting verbs uh, by uh, yes. <laughs> uh, sort of verbifying uh, these nouns based on pop culture icons or memes and that sort of stuff. My personal favourite was, uh, you know, for, for example, if we were playing against one another and, you know, Chris shoots and kills uh, Stephen, uh, it would say, Chris Malcolm Turnbull Stephen or Chris Kanye Wested Stephen, or Stephen uh, Yolo'd Chris, or something like that. It's it's just all these very silly memes that it uses, and uh, yeah, even when you're playing with AI bots in the absence of a full contingent of four local players, uh, it will name those bots. Like one of my favourites was the iSnack 2.0 bot, which wow, I, I thought, wow, that's 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 a reference and a half. The, the old failed Vegemite experiment. Yeah, gosh, you can tell us an Australian developer when, like, yes. gosh, when was that? That was, gosh, oh, that a was, decade ago, um, maybe? Yeah, that, that was late 2000s, I think, yeah. Oh, my word. That's, well, for anyone who doesn't know, because there are probably people who weren't born then who have got to play screen sheet, which is terrifying <laughs> to me, but, like... Wasn't it just basically Vegemite, but a bit cheesy? Yeah, they, they held a competition, uh, a public competition to name the new Vegemite, which was like Vegemite with a twist of cheese flavouring or something like that. And the, the winning entry was iSnack 2.0, because that was when iPhone oh. was really becoming a thing. So putting I, you know, a, a little, uh, a lowercase I before everything was, you know, so, so cool, oh, so hip, so, so prevalent. Trendy. It was definitely and- every successful product did that. You know, yeah. because all those ones that didn't get made by Apple, everyone still remembers the i. I, I can't remember any of the products that did it, but it was everywhere. <laughs> but the the thing was is that people very quickly called uh, called Vegemite out on their crap and said, out of all the entries you received, that was the best you could come up with because iSnack two point what, what indication does that give you that the, it was Vegemite with cheese? Like, so then uh, there was a, a very, very quick turnaround and backlash, uh, and then I think it ended up being called Cheesy Bite, and the fact that yes, it's not that stocked on shelves right. anymore indicates that, uh, yeah, it wasn't all that popular. I wonder, gosh, this is going way off topic, so we'll probably stop soon, but like, I, that seems like viral marketing before it had become such a thing that we really knew what it was, like the whole mm. do a dumb thing so people get angry about it and talk about it on the internet. It wasn't as much of a thing then. Maybe is does Kraft do Vegemite? I can't remember who does Vegemite now. Uh, they did at the time, at least. I can't remember. Well, maybe they were onto something. Maybe they're pioneers of our modern consumer culture. Well done. <laughs> and now it's being represented in... 2018, 2019 video games. Uh, just the legacy of Australian culture. It's just it just warms the heart. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! But yeah, that that was uh, that was a highlight of screen cheat, no doubt. Nice. Well, I'm I'm curious to to pick your brain a little bit around Horizon Chase because this is one that I've played a little bit, but not 
well, actually, I played quite a bit of it, but not on a console. Like, it was uh, originally an iOS game, or at least that's where I played it. Mm. And it, yeah, I really sort of, it was one of the first iOS racing games that I sort of found myself going back to for more than like a day or two. I kept playing this for maybe a week or two. It was, um, yeah, it was pretty good. Had like, you know, it was a good pick up and play sort of that, uh, is it Outrun? Yeah, Outrun-ish sort mm. of uh, hook to, you know, how how the cars handle and everything had that incredible, cool, like neon eighties aesthetic a little bit, just, just slightly before that became oversaturated and a little bit <laughs> blase, yes. but it's, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it, but I'm curious to see, like, did you, had you played it on mobile before you uh, played the switch version? No, no, I hadn't, but I can definitely see the iOS and mobile design fingerprints all over it because it does have this you know, wonderfully juicy interface. And, you know, as with a lot of juicy. mobile, yeah, I've, I've heard it. <laughs> Apparently, it's a, it's a term that Blizzard use with, um, with Hearthstone. Um, oh, okay. It's, uh, apparently, it's a phrase that they use to, you know, when, when interacting with a game, especially in a game like Hearthstone, where every click and, or touch and drag of a card has a very tangible effect. And, you know, uh, there's lots of nice uh, colored effects and sound effects to really make every action pop. Uh, I think apparently internally they refer to it as a juicy interface. Well, um, it's do that's... do feel free to fact check and say Chris, you're full of shit. But uh, I'm no, pretty well, sure I'm, that's what I remember hearing. I'd honestly prefer to you know leave this as canon canon truth because I just want to just think of the word juicy interface every time I play Hearthstone from now on. So thank you for this gift. Well, I mean, if if not, it can be head canon. It can be yeah. our own canon. It's it's our Hearthstone fan fiction. Although I fear if we delve on that too long then it could get to some weird places so yeah let's I'm move not on creative enough for fan fiction horizon chase let me know what well, how <laughs> how is it how is it on switch <laughs> yeah it's it's quite good like i said it's it's got mobile fingerprints all over it because it does have this this wonderful design that invites you to navigate through the menus and you know investigate uh, all the different game modes and and what everything is all about uh, but yeah it's just it's just a really good racer it just feels really nice to control it's got this lovely art style and lovely uh, you know these these sort of pastel colors um, for all of its cars and all the environments it's very very nice to look at um, and as as you say it lends itself to coming back and playing more of but what I was most impressed with is that uh, it has local multiplayer which has a bit of a theme here at the moment with lo- local multiplayer mm. but um, it horizon and I, I always get tongue-tied because when I think Horizon and racing, I go back to thinking of Forza Horizon or Horizon Chase Turbo. I almost uh, begin to say Horizon Zero Dawn, which is oh, nothing gosh, alike it's, whatsoever. It's been a very but, Horizon generation, hasn't it? Indeed, indeed. People gazing upon the horizon. And with uh, Horizon Chase Turbo, uh, the, uh, the local multiplayer is quite good because the main... Uh, well, not story mode, but the main mode, uh, what's it called? World Tour mm. is, uh, sees you traveling from country to country, playing on various, you know, country themed, uh, racetracks and circuits and each with their own unique, uh, little bits of art and environment to indicate that, yes, this is definitely Istanbul you're racing in, or yes, this is Australia. Uh, but, um, the, uh, in multiplayer, 
everything you do in multiplayer, all your progress accumulates and carries across. And so you can play with another person like I did with my brother a fair bit to uh, unlock new races, unlock new cars and that sort of thing. And it was just, it was just so seamless, so easy for a second or more players to, to jump in and to, to play the, the main mode. Um, and yeah, it was just, just really nice, really pleasant to play. Uh, although it, it does, um, does bear mentioning that I did encounter some glitches. Uh, there were some crashes where I was forced to reboot back to the home screen and jump back in and that sort of thing, which is, um, I, I did hear from the developers that that is being patched and, and will be fixed in the future. Uh, but the, the fact that Horizon, um, is so easy to to get into it's so quick to play races everything's quick to navigate quick to load and everything's just so quick about it is that i found after you know each time the game crashed it was just so easy to jump back in and keep going for more so yeah really enjoyed it nice i'm I'm really curious about the um the co-op because I know some of my favorite especially i guess it counts for most games but racing games especially where you can play just like have another person in the race with you but it also counts towards the unlockables that are in a lot of games sort of hidden behind single player modes like yeah mario kart does this well and that's why it's sort of one of my favorite games to play with other people especially when you're going through unlocking stuff as you do it you just feel like you get that progression while also being able to play with friends which is nice and but like so does horizon chase because i remember it had Oh, there was like a fuel and coins sort of um, set up. So like you had, you'd like run out of fuel. I guess it's similar to a, a timer of a traditional arcade racer. You'd have to pick up fuel icons to be able to extend your timer. Does that, like, do you share the timer or, or do you like, can one of you get knocked out and the other keeps going? How does it work in co-op? The, the latter, uh, the, the, the latter in, in terms of, uh, so one player could, uh, could have missed you know, the fuel pickups that they needed to complete a race so they could conk out and ret- uh, retire while oh, okay. the other player could finish the race and whatever points they accumulate or coins they collect or whatever placing they finish in the race, that will count as the progress uh, towards um, whatever unlockables or whatever point total you get at the end. So, yeah, it's, you know, you're able to play together and you're able to compete against one another. So, of course, there's competition for, oh, yeah, I want to beat you. I want to finish first. Mm. But there is there is an element of teamwork in that, okay, I could finish the race first, but um, my fellow um, you know, my fellow player could collect all the coins. So the game would then say, okay, so one of the players finished first, so you get the you know allotment of points allocated to whoever finishes first, and the other player collected all the coins, so that will accumulate into one um, one sort of progression package, if you will, uh, to sort of get you the the full score or full points allocated to that race, which is is quite cool. So it's almost yeah, almost a bit of a almost a bit of a, a NASCAR sort of racing as a team sort of arrangement. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, did you? I remember there was a, quite a bit of. I don't know, because obviously you need the fuel to keep going, but you want to get the coins to like, you know, to be able to unlock stuff as you go. Did you find, I, I, I kind of found myself sort of pushing to the edge of, oh, maybe I can miss this fuel, get those coins. Cause often they'd be like on opposite sides of the track at some of the times. It's like, 
can I miss this fuel? Can I just grab those coins? And then just like those last like moments where I'm just, just teetering on empty, getting towards the next other fuel, um, fuel pickup or the end of the race. It's like, Oh God, it's so stressful. Ah, what's going on? Did you, did you find yourself drawn to that same, I guess, dramatic way of playing or were you a little bit more, uh, conservative and probably smarter because you didn't, uh, crash out of races as often as I did? <laughs> Oh, well, you've, you've hit it spot on. There, there is that definite risk and reward uh, style of racing in Horizon Chase Turbo uh, because, as you say, the, the coins that you can collect on each track are quite often on opposite corners or opposite sides of the track to the fuel pickups. So, yeah, there is a definite risk and reward element uh, that it is it is totally possible to collect all the coins and you know pick up fuel pickups and that sort of stuff as well. But uh, especially on some of the later tracks, it's really quite challenging to try and actually finish the race by collecting fuel and collecting all the coins as well. So I I found myself, you know, trying to get all the coins because you know they're they're nice big blue shiny things. I want to collect the shinies. But um, of course, of course, in um, in multiplayer uh, with with my brother and I, it, it lent uh, especially to an aggressive brand of racing because we were thinking. Well, um, and 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 I I'll take it a step back in that the the coins are unique pickups for each player. So if one player oh, okay. collects the coins, it doesn't disappear for the other player. Nice. Okay. So, so you can so, sort of double yeah. up in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So if you know for whatever reason you know both players happen to collect their allotment of coins, but then one. Uh, you know, runs out of fuel, then the other could still finish and they won't miss out on coins by virtue of the other player having nicked them in the first place, uh, which which is nice. But yes. then um, then to, to go back to, to what I was saying is that um, it uh, Horizon lends itself to an aggressive racing style in multiplayer because, yeah, we want to both try and get the coins because we feel like, well, if we both try and get the coins and we're giving ourselves the best possible chance of, uh, you know, Getting the uh, the best score possible when uh, going towards more unlocks and that sort of stuff later on. Nice, yeah, and I'm yeah, I'm really curious to see. Well, really, actually, wanting to give this a try on Switch because yeah, I, I do remember it was it was well suited to mobile. It was mostly uh, from memory, it was sort of motion controlled to like the whole Mario Kart Wii style, use your phone as a, a steering mm. wheel sort of deal. But I imagine with it, it kind of worked pretty well in that way, but it might be nice to play A on the nice huge screen of a Switch and B just that co-op stuff just means it'd be something that I'd be wanting to play more than just like for a five minute tea break at work or something. It could be something that I'd play, you know, sit down for a good session at home with someone. That would be great fun. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. No, it's it's one that my brother and I played a, a fair bit of while I was reviewing it. So yeah, can recommend. Cool, nice. Well, I figure I might give you a, a moment to catch your breath and we'll see if we have a little bit of a chat about Downwell that I've been playing and reviewing pretty recently. Um, so if anyone hasn't heard of Downwell, essentially it's... I'm trying to think of the visual style it tries to, to emulate. It's sort of like old sort of, I guess... It reminds me of old British PC style, sort of like two, two or three color, uh, super low res sort of thing. But you are, you're a man who falls down a well or just decides to go down a well, I guess he decides. Um, but yeah, he, he can jump and kill things and he has gun boots and uses those to, to jump around and, and shoot things. And that's really the entire premise of this game. You just want to get to the bottom of the well. Um, 
Yeah, it's been really surprisingly fun. It's a game that I played. It came out on iOS a few years ago, which is another theme. Um, but I've been playing it on Switch. When I was playing it on on phone, it was it was well suited because obviously, like the vertical orientation or portrait orientation of a phone suits something where you're sort of moving vertically pretty well. But you have your left, right, and fire controls as touch buttons at the bottom. They worked as well as they could for touch screens, but I always I found every now and then when I died, like some of the time it was, yeah, I made a dumb, dumb mistake and stupid decision. But occasionally it was, I feel like I fumbled that because it was difficult to discern where the left and right end or where one, where left ended and right began or, or vice versa. And I sometimes just, yeah, felt like it wasn't entirely my fault that I died. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a blast playing it on Switch. I've been able to uh, give a proper try to the flip grip that I picked up a little while ago back on when it was a Kickstarter project. I, I got that and haven't really had much dis- or much chance to use it. I, I bought Punch Out purely for something to play with it. And I was like, oh, this, this is fine, but it's, it's not going to grab me. But yeah, Downwell, it's like, a perfect, perfect match for this game. You get the full, like, the vertical orientation so you can see everything. It's big, amazing. And then you've got your physical controls of the Joy-Cons on either side. It's, yeah, it's a perfect way to play it. I've been playing it almost at every opportunity and often, you know, even after the review, often I'll, like, drop games a little bit after the review to go back Mm. to what my, I guess, main game is. Uh, But, no, I've been... I guess probably due to its pick up and play sort of quick fire nature, I've been just picking this up with a I'll just keep going with this. It's it surprised me with how much how much the difference has made just going from mobile to a platform with a, a big vertical screen has made. Nice. And for, for someone who's unfamiliar with the sort of the, the format of Danwell uh I me, yeah. What- how how does how does it play? Is it like an arcade game where you you jump in and try and go over a high score, or are there are there levels, or are there roguelike elements? What what's the the general format of play? I'd say roguelike is probably the closest you'd come to a uh, I guess a description of how it's structured. So it's a little bit spelunkyish, very that's very tenuously spelunkyish. But I've seen that comparison a lot, and I can kind of see where it's coming from. So mm-hmm. you you start off the game, and you sort of you have a, your initial area, which is the sort of the top of the well, and you've that split up into three levels. Uh, as you get to the bottom of each level, you go through, and you can pick up a an upgrade. So that can change the way that you like. It can give you say extra health, or it can. My favorite one was being able to eat the corpses of enemies to get some health back which is health is very very important in this and it makes yeah very satisfying every time you do it which is (laughs) just just makes me very happy (laughs) and stuff like you can force uh, there are shops that you'll usually find as you go down the well but one of the upgrades gives you like a vrp pass so you'll always get discounts at those shops and there'll always be a shop at the start of every level so you can use that as a you know something you can um yeah, rely on at the start of each level. Um, and yeah, as you go through three levels to an area, you go through to the second area and it'll be like a, a darker, more sinister sort of area with ghosts and skulls and spikes and stuff. You go further than that and it becomes... The furthest I've gotten is the third area, which is the aquifer, which is a bit it's like, I guess, the water table part of the well. Um, and yeah, it, you can... Um, it, when you die, you lose everything so there's there's the spelunky uh comparison there i guess you start at the top again and really the progress that you get is 
having learned how to manage the enemies as you come to them and how each of the weapons handles, which I forgot the weapons. Uh, so when you, as you're playing, you can also, similar to finding shops, you'll find these little side rooms that have weapon they're they're less upgrades and more just like other weapon options uh you pick them up and they'll give you a little bit extra health a little bit of extra ammo uh and they'll change the way your weapon handles so your first one is just a basic couple of shots shoot directly downward but there's one that shoots it's called a triple which shoots like one down and uh two sort of to either side and sort of a spread formation uh there's a shotgun which is that but like even more just ridiculous more bullets at a time um and yeah, stuff like that. And essentially, one of the core core mechanics is that your gun reloads when you hit the ground, and you want to try and get uh, yeah kill as many enemies as you can without reloading the weapon. So you, you'll eventually. It took me a long time to even begin begin trying to like start this mindset because it was just surviving was my main sort of prerogative. But once you sort of got a, a handle on how the game plays you can start to jump know which enemies you can jump on safely which ones will hurt you if you jump on them uh, and try and sort of land on those without touching the ground and killing as many as you can without needing to reload so that you if you get a certain number in a combo you get rewarded with uh, the currency that you can spend at shops later on down the track and it's sort of another way of another way of playing i guess you can choose to just try and get to the bottom regardless of trying to get combos just saying staying safe or you can you know put an extra layer of challenge on it trying to get more combos which gives you more rewards but if you don't know really what you're doing it can be a bit of a a death trap because you'll I found myself trying to make, get this big combo and then, oh crap, I didn't keep track of how much ammo I have. So now my, my weapon's out of ammo. I can't use it as a way to control my descent anymore. So I'm just uncontrollably falling and hoping there's no spikes there. It's, yeah, there, there's a lot going on in this game. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm curious because you mentioned about how, um, what, what you define as progress in Downwell is that by each run, you learn a bit more about how to deal with particular enemies in particular areas. Hmm. I take it that each each time you go down the well, as such, uh, that the uh, the allocation and the order of the areas and levels, and therefore enemies they uh, contain, is is it the same each time, or does it say, all right, now you're starting with this area instead, or whatever? Oh right, yeah. So the um, like the environments themselves are always the same. So you'll always mm-hmm. have the regular t- part of the well at the top, and then I can't remember. I think it's called the catacombs is the next part, then the aquifer, then whatever's beyond there. Mm-hmm. And so they'll always contain the same kinds of like environments, the same uh, variety of enemies, but it'll always be in, I guess, a procedurally generated way. The environments will be different every time. The enemies will be in a slightly different position every time. It never feels unfair. So it's procedurally generated in a way that doesn't leave you with any like, I guess, unfair environments that might get you stuck or have enemies that can kill you without you doing much about it. This always feels fair when in the way that it's generated. Um, but yeah, so you'll always, you'll sort of master the first area by dying and replaying it a lot. And so that means when you play later on, you've sort of, yeah, you're able to more reliably get past the first area and then you can start practicing on the second and so on and so forth. Yeah, sure. And are there any uh, any ways of measuring your past runs or any any of that sort of thing? Does it keep track of either uh, either a score or does it say, oh, your your best run of all time is getting to 
level two or area two of this particular section or or is the the main goal uh sort of getting to the end and it'll be like yeah you you did a thing you got to the end um all of those, really. I guess it, it does keep track of the furthest you've been down the well. So it'll say your deepest descent is three comma one, uh, so like area uh, area three level one. Um, and it'll also keep track of how many gems or the currency you've collected on the way down. And mm-hmm. sort of there's leaderboards. I don't think there's like leaderboards for how far you've gotten, since there's not really many granular levels of score there but there's definitely leaderboards as far as how much currency that people have gotten in a single run and one of the best things people who don't review games won't won't know the joy of this but getting on a leaderboard a world leaderboard before anyone else has the game is a very (laughs) very cool feeling i was like number six in the world at one point because there were like 11 people playing the game but like (laughs) (laughs) i'm taking that screenshot i'm holding that i'm never getting rid of that screenshot it's mine and no one can take that from me even though i'm probably like thousands down at this point since you know the general public have got it and are far better at this game than me i'm certain of it um but yeah and I reckon you ought to uh, tweet that out so we can signal boost and say, hey, look at our boy Stephen. He was number six in the world. Just just ignore the score part of it. Just look at the, just, the just position. Crop just crop it. <laughs> yes, good plan. I'll do that. <laughs> but yeah, like, I'm, I was surprised at how much having physical controls really changed the way I approached... Or, I guess not change the way I approach Downwell, but more sort of made me appreciate the design of Downwell when I could feel like I was 100% in control. I could really focus on what the game was doing rather than ever fumbling with how the game was being interfaced with. Hmm. And so for someone like myself who who doesn't have a flip grip, which I've heard is like the the definitive way to play Downwell and a number of these portraits, styled games uh where where do i hunt down a flip grip are there are there different types or is there is it just one particular thing that's sold through a, a particular outlet or what what do i do if i'm looking into that sort of thing uh, to my knowledge there's only one because there was like a kickstarter campaign where they sort of went through and made a whole bunch of prototypes uh, mm-hmm. and they came to this this final design it's done through uh it's fangamer.com and it's mm-hmm. like 12 us dollars so like I saw that price. I was like, I don't even have any games that will support this, but I'm sure I will at one point. So why the hell not? I'll buy this. And yeah, wow. Yeah, basically, sort of. It's there's really not that much to it. It's a little, uh, yeah, plastic piece that you slot the switch screen into vertically, and then it's got the side pieces so you can slot and click in the Joy Cons on either side. Uh, obviously, they work wirelessly because it's not physically connected to the switch aside from, you know, being physically on the same piece of plastic, but there's no electrical connection there. So you'll still have to worry about batteries running out on the Joy-Cons and stuff. But mm. yeah, it's just ridiculously easy. It's a tiny little device. It's, it's um yeah, I'm just sort of throwing it in the backpack whenever I bring my Switch around because honestly, if I'm not going to play something with friends specifically, then Downwell is kind of my go-to game at the moment. So just chucking this little bit of plastic in there to slot the Switch into is just... Yeah, it's it's so easy. I love this little de- uh, device. I guess nice. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it's worth picking up. Yeah, because I remember um, sort of in the lead up or just after the release of uh, of Downwell that I did see a, a roundup article on uh, on a, an overseas website saying here's all the games that are compatible with the flip grip, or you know here's all the games that you should consider either getting a flip grip for or if you've got a flip grip then you know here's 
here's what you should look out for. So mm. maybe it's something um, we could do at Vooks as well, saying like here here are our favourite games to play with Flip Grip or, or that yeah. sort of thing. Because uh, from I, I was quite surprised because I was aware that the Flip Grip was a thing to to play these sort of vertically oriented games on the Switch. Uh, but I was quite surprised that very very sort of subtly and very very quickly there's quite a bunch of games out there and decent ones by the looks of things as well that are compatible with and potentially and arguably made better by having a, a flip grip to control it with. Yeah, I think there were there were even before the flip grip came out, there were a couple of games that were doing it, especially that were sort of classic arcade games that would be played mm. on that sort of portrait orientated. I think please don't kill me if I say it wrong, but I think it's called a Tate mode. Uh, like T-A-T-E mode and that's sort of the the name for that orientation or that style of like vertical arcade game and there's stuff like Ikaruga which apparently plays extremely well with the flip grip I haven't bought it yet I think it's on sale at the moment so maybe I should do that um, hmm. yeah there are a lot of older like arcade collections I think the Namco and Sega stuff has a few uh, games that are compatible with just the vertical orientation and just happen to work wonderfully with this. Um, there are a couple that don't because the way that it's built, the switch can only insert into the device one way. Uh, so some of them flip the screen in the wrong direction. So it's like <laughs> playing it upside down. But what can you do? It's it's yeah. Most games that are worth playing seem to you know seem to be compatible with it. Or some of them even patched after the fact once they realise, hey, people want to play this with this device. All it takes is us to flip the screen the other way. So let's patch mm. that in. So yeah, it's been kind of surprising how receptive developers and publishers have been to this weird little indie plastic shell that people are slotting their switches into just because people are enjoying playing it that way. Yeah, cool. I think the one I'd be most keen to suss out is the the arcade uh, classic Donkey Kong game. Um, I'd yeah. I'd be keen to see if that's compatible because, yeah, that's that's certainly one that I grew up playing and uh, my, my dad in particular, I could imagine if I showed that to him, he'd be... He'd be all over it. Yeah, that'd be wild for someone and yeah, who, who'd grown up with that game. It's like because you can't really play it properly. Like it works obviously on a, a, a widescreen, but you've just got giant bars on either side. It's not optimum, but yeah, this this would be pretty perfect for that. Hmm. Nice. Cool. Cool. Well, um, I would like to finish off this show because gosh, somehow we've managed to talk forty minutes ish about those games, and I thought it would not be so quick, but that's that's lovely. We've had a lot of good stuff to say, um, but I'd like to finish off with Bowser's Inside Story that you've been, yeah, pretty madly into by the looks of your review and been playing a, a lot of, and it's a big game from memory. Like I didn't play Bowser's Inside Story on DS because I'm horrible. I I bought that game. And I haven't played it because I finished Superstar Saga. I got halfway through Partners in Time and then just never really finished it. And so mm. I never felt like I should play any of the subsequent games until I finished Partners in Time. And that's just never happened. I'm a mess when it comes to Mario and Luigi games, but I love them all the same. <laughs> How have you been finding Bowser's Inside Story? Yeah, well, I mean, to to add on to what you were saying about your experience with the Mario and Luigi games is I'm, I'm a big fan of the series as well. Like, I, I played ton of superstar saga on the game boy advance i was utterly enamored with that game, oh, that game um, and so par- cool. partners partners in time i played a fair chunk of but then i got to the final boss and i just found a lot of the boss encounters to go for ages and partners in time so i got to the final boss and never actually beat it um uh, because I just got to the point where, you know what, can't be stuffed, I want to play other stuff. Yeah, I do um, remember some of those bosses being a little bit like, 
this seems like it's going for a long time, but it's doing the same thing for a long time. It was never really mm. particularly challenging. It was more just a test of endurance that didn't really work for me at the time. Yeah, that's that's what I vaguely remember. And I think um, especially with the, the end boss of Partners in Time, which... I it's been very long, so I cannot remember the details. But I think I remember once you got the boss's health past a halfway point or that sort of thing, then they started using this attack that was you know, quite a fair bit of dex- dexterity to to counter and to dodge. So having to do that over and over again uh, certainly uh, wore me down. Mm. But um, Bowser's Inside Story, I I found to be just a, a a perfect length RPG in that it's if if you go through it pretty quickly, which it is possible to do so, then you can you can get through it in not much more than twenty hours. So okay. for 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 an RPG, and I know the Mario and Luigi games aren't like JRPGs where it's like forty, fifty plus hours that sort of thing. But I found when I originally played it on the DS. I you know really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed its tone. Really enjoyed being able to play as Bowser as well as Mario and Luigi, and it was such a weird and wacky concept. Um, and yeah, it just it was just a really nice length. Like I I remember playing and finishing it and thinking that didn't take too long. That wasn't too short either. That was that was a good length. It's More weird video games to should think, be this length. Yeah, it's so weird to think that a lot of RPGs, or I guess this kind of more succinct RPG, is. Not the longest kind of game in the world anymore. Like, it's probably, you know, people who've, you know, grown up in sort of the Super NES PlayStation era when, like, an RPG that was, like, it's 80 to 100 hours long and that's the, like, cool thing on the back cover. But Mm. now it's, like, I don't know, that sort of playing a game forever and a day has been taken a little bit by the Ubisoft-style open-world kind of genre Mm. and... I know I'm I'm okay with RPGs being a little more succinct and not feeling like they have to be like this 100-hour epic cuz it always ends up being roughly like 60-70% filler material I find so yeah. yeah that's I'm pleased to hear it's a, a reasonable length it's not short by any means but it's a sounds like it's long enough to get you fill and not uh you know overfill yeah, and I mean, this is coming from someone who spent their Christmas and New Year's playing Persona 4 Golden for the first time. Uh-huh. At the end of it, and at the end of it, I, uh, I saw uh, it took me about seventy hours to get the the golden true ending or whatever it was. Oh dang! Thought, yeah, yeah, that that felt like that respected my time because Persona 5 took me about one hundred and ten hours. Yeah, I was the same with Persona 5, and gosh, Persona 4. This this is another thing off topic, but I'm going to tell my Persona 4 story. I got to the end of it and mm. realized that I had not. Uh, there's a particular junction point in the story where it even tells you, hey, this is a big decision point. Do you want to save? Oh, no. I'm like, sure, yes, I'll save. And then I didn't really realize what the decision I was making and then went ahead and made the not correct one, let's say. Went ahead and saved over that save file, finished the game. and was like, you made the wrong choice. You need to play. If you, It would normally let you go back to that save file and just try again from that point. I didn't have that save file, so I played through the entire game again and oh, to get dear. that true yeah. ending. Without getting into too much detail, did a certain someone get pushed into a TV? Yes. Yep. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I made sure to read up on that beforehand. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wish I did because then there's another part. There's like an f- extra secret dungeon you can do, but you can only do that on your run after getting a new after getting the true ending. And so I was like, I've I've spent the last 120 hours finishing this twice. I don't really feel like doing it a third time. So sorry, Elizabeth. I'm just not going to go through the secret dungeon. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, Mario and Luigi. I, I hate to take us too far off topic. Um, no, no, that's. Uh, I'm I'm enjoying talking about everything, even though we yeah, are meant to be fun. a Nintendo Nintendo podcast. So I fear you know everything's everything's all good. But uh, yeah, yeah Bowser's Bowser's inside story. So for for those who aren't familiar uh, with the Mario and Luigi RPG games, is that they are they are a turn based RPG. Uh, with little bits of exploration and light platforming involved outside of the battles. But the battles are really cool because, uh, like most turn-based RPGs, you select your commands or what uh, what attacks you want to do, but there's also a fair bit of interaction with it as well. You don't press a button and they will attack. Uh, you say, choose, I want Mario to use a jump attack on this Goomba. Uh, so you press A, and then when he goes up to jump on the Goomba to do the most damage, you've got to press A again as you land on the Goomba, and then you can press A again to then finish the attack with an extra flourish and do extra damage. But then there are further attacks with more complexity, more controls and command inputs to uh, to enact, which I find adds just this nice bit of depth and layering to the combat that keeps you actively involved in the combat instead of pressing oh yeah, yep jump 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 on this uh, on this enemy over and over again and there's uh, no further input required from the player yeah. Uh, so yeah so Bowser's inside story is the third in this series and continues that uh, that style of combat and the exploration but the real quirky uh, setup and premise is that due to things going bad as they always do in the mushroom kingdom uh, Bowser ends up with the ability to uncontrollably inhale everything that he sees. Uh, So he ends up inhaling a bunch of residents of the Mushroom Kingdom, which include the likes of Mario, Luigi, Princess Peach, Toadsworth, and a bunch of other random toads. So the, the weird premise is that throughout the game, you get to control as Bowser separately to the, um, to the two Mario brothers, uh, and as the Mario brothers, you're exploring the the insides of Bowser, which it's is not gross or yuck or anything like it probably sounds. It's yeah, all, it does a bit. You know, very, it's all very, very Marioized, uh, for lack of a better term. You know, everything's um, you know, very, very weird and wacky and very cutesy and. Um, all you know, all very colourful and that sort of stuff. But yeah, as Mario and Luigi, you're solving various uh, puzzles and battling these, you know, weird antibody type enemies and that sort of stuff to try and escape Bowser and save the Mushroom Kingdom. And then on the outside, as Bowser, you're trying to stop his uh, Bowser's castle from being overtaken by a uh, a villain that would be familiar to fans of the Mario and Luigi series, uh, and I'll leave it at that. It, does, although, uh, does said villain's name start with F? Uh, yes. Hmm. I have a thought, but let's not go too far into it. <laughs> they reveal themselves very early in the game, so it's not really much of a spoiler, but I'll just leave it there for those who are familiar with the series. And... 
Yeah, essentially, you um, in these separate sections, you play as Bowser as well, and you've got a you know, big heavy punch attack, and you can breathe fire and learn a bunch of other abilities to solve various puzzles and using combat and that sort of stuff. And there's there's this nice separation between Bowser and the the Mario Brothers in that Bowser, as he should, feels you know big and heavy and his attacks feel very deliberate uh, whereas the the Mario Brothers are more nimble and agile and their attacks reflect that as well so there's there's a nice variety in the combat and the exploration and the puzzle solving as you're regularly switching between the two perspectives which yeah really makes for a really nice and fresh experience and as with the Mario and Luigi uh, RPGs. the The writing is very sharp. It's very witty, very funny, and you know there's there's all sorts of humour to appeal to the younger gamers. You know a lot of silly slapstick stuff, uh, usually involving Luigi. And then there's some, poor yeah, Luigi. Plenty of, yeah, poor Luigi, but uh, he is the best Mario brother uh, objectively. Um, and then um, yeah, then there's plenty of writing and sassy characters with a bit of snark about them, which uh, yeah provides plenty of laughs along the way. But yeah, so this this was originally a Nintendo DS game, and now has been reworked for the 3DS to uh, you know bring it to uh, those who own the uh, own the more recent of the the two screen consoles. And uh, yeah, they've given it a nice facelift, a bit more of a 3D look and. Uh, they've upgraded the the shaders so that everything has this more dynamic look. Uh, the environments feel more fleshed out and full and vibrant and that sort of thing. And yeah, and as a as a bonus, there's a there's a little spin off game called Bowser Junior's Journey, which is a bit of a uh, sort of there's sort of tower defense elements to it, but it's a bit of an mm. auto tactics battler sort of thing which uh, I, I played a little bit of it's it's okay but yeah the real the real main stuff is in the the bowser's inside story main game which i, I find to be an utterly brilliant rpg and my absolute highlight of the Mario and luigi series to date oh wow really gosh yeah. I, I need to get off my button <laughs> maybe maybe i should just go straight to bowser's inside story i guess there's not really much in the way of like story threads linking these games if memory serves so nah, there's really nah. no reason i sh- haven't played it it's just my own laziness um well it's maybe i'll do that i guess the um so bowser jr's journey i remember that was sort of a big deal with like the initial reveal marketing and stuff but it sounds like it's not really as big a draw as they made it sound like is it is there much to it how does the whole auto battle side of things work yeah it's it's not bad it feels on on terms of quality and depth it feels like a nintendo developed mobile game which have been relatively decent but as as with a lot of mobile games i just don't find there's quite enough depth to keep me coming back but yeah it's it's not a bad concept. Essentially, it's happening at the same time as the start of Bowser's Inside Story, where Bowser goes off to um, to um, the Mushroom Kingdom to figure out why he hasn't been invited to some big, important conference thing. And so Bowser Jr. is left behind at the castle, and um, he he goes off with the the Koopalings to uh, to go and find this cure for this illness that's afflicting various goombas which is making them swell up to 
sort of humorous and comedic size to like a big beach balloon or beach <laughs> ball sort of thing. Um, so yeah, on on his way, uh, he comes across a bunch of uh, bunch of enemies and, and battles and that sort of thing, which uh, takes place um, in the form of uh, sort of an auto battle system where prior to the battle. Uh, you've got Bowser Jr. as sort of the captain of an army, and then you get to pick up to, uh, I think it's eight other units, nine other units, uh, a bunch of bunch of other units which range from Coopers, uh, Goombas, Paratroopers, Shy Guys, Boos, you know, all, all sorts of the classic Mario uh, minions and that sort of thing, um, and they all. They all have different specialties and stats in battle. For example, Boo is a flying enemy, so having a ground uh, unit uh, as a Goomba to try and combat a Boo is next to useless, whereas Shy Guys have uh, have a ranged attack, which can hit uh, airborne enemies. So there's a bit of a combat triangle where ground beats range, range beats air, air beats ground, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so, then, so then you've got to try and pick... A, a team composition that matches up with the, the next battle that you're entering in and you'll be shown, okay, here's the unit composition of who you're coming up against. So then you've got to try and figure out, okay, what team do I need to build to combat that? And then when you enter the battle, you'll see it play out and then there'll be a couple of button prompts here and there when there's like bonus attacks or you know a special ability may have unlocked or whatever. Uh, but generally speaking, the most important part is getting your team composition right to combat what the enemy has. So, yeah, it's it's a bit bit more of a, a tactics-focused sort of thing, which, yeah, is, is interesting, but especially the, the largely hands-off auto-battle component of it didn't quite draw me in. But it almost sounds like the, yeah. the antithesis of the battles in, like, as Mario and Luigi, it was... Almost mm. seems like it was designed to take away that hands off. You click a button in the menu and watch the animation play out. It sort of gets mm. you into the action. Whereas this almost seems like the opposite. It's barely. It doesn't sound like you're even choosing a you know, choosing an option to do. You're sort of setting up your loadout and watching it happen, which is you know potentially a good way. It doesn't sound like the worst thing, but it's yeah really unusual considering you know what the aims of Mario and Luigi were in the first place. Yeah, it is. You're right uh, in some respects that it does feel a little bit of the opposite of what the Mario and Luigi series strives to achieve with its highly dynamic combat system. Um, but yeah, it's it's a, it's a small little side mode. It's hmm. it's more more of a side dish to the main course of Bowser's Inside Story, and it's. I, I would say the package is made better by its inclusion because you don't okay. lose anything by having it there. It's just that I. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoy Bowser's Inside Story much more than you know a little little side game like Bowser Junior's Journey. Which hey, that's you know yeah, that's all right. I mean, yeah, it's nice that it's there. I guess. Um, well, I'm I'm disappointed you didn't use the term Bowser the big beefy boy in the podcast like you did in the review. I <laughs> I got a got a, a wonderful chuckle out of reading that line. <laughs> well, Bowser is a big beefy boy, so there we go. We've oh, we've got you. it we've got it on recording now. So yes, use as um, you will. But yeah, I, I will. I will just just finish on on the notes um, that one one thing that Bowser's Inside Story uh, has done for me, and I'm, I'm yet to put it into practice, but it has made me think about it a lot more. Is about how good 
a system the 3DS actually is. In in the wake of the Switch's release in March 2017, my 3DS has been largely ignored. We've even had some major Pokemon releases since then, which I've bought and barely played and that sort of thing. I've got some of the, the really good Fire Emblem games, which I haven't touched on the 3DS and that sort of thing. But actually... Having been assigned the review for Bowser's Inside Story and having to commit to playing a game through to completion on the 3DS has made me think, oh, geez, I've got all these games on the 3DS that I actually want to go back and play now. You know, the, the 3DS and the Switch can coexist, uh, even though we, we know that a bunch of games, um, like Sushi Strikers and I uh, think Captain Toad and that sort of stuff mm. have released simultaneously on 3DS and Switch. And I believe the attach rates have been far higher on the Switch, even though the 3DS has a larger install base, which does indicate that the 3DS you know, will be phased out soon because people, uh, fewer and fewer people are buying games and the, the consoles themselves you know, for the system. Uh, but... What's what's there on the console? I'm really keen to to go back and actually revisit a bunch of games that I've overlooked on the 3DS because the Switch is fantastic and is wonderful, and I'll sing its praises from the mountaintops. <laughs> but gee whiz, the 3DS is is such a good system, and yeah, if if you've got some games sitting in the cupboard that you haven't touched for a while or uh, have ignored in favour of the Switch, take a Take a, a switch sabbatical and uh, revisit, and give give your 3ds some love. Yeah, I think I had a somewhat similar uh, 3ds kind of renaissance a little bit recently. I managed to, after a long time, find like one of the new 3ds, like the non-XL models in black, mm-hmm. and I'd been looking for that for so long. I managed to find one, and a it's just such a nice little system. Like even the switch is quite bulky; it's portable, but in less of a sense than the 3ds is i guess Mm. but like yeah it it just sort of really points it out and put a spotlight on the fact that there are certain kinds of games that were made possible by the combination of dual screen and touch screen and buttons Mm. as an interface where the switch's innovation is more that like in a physical you can play it here you can play it there and it's the same experience whereas the 3ds Mm is kind of can't be replicated through any other means. Like the closest we came were uh, DS Virtual Console games on the Wii U. And even then that's kind of gone. That was the closest we got to a dual screen involving a TV sort of setup. And yeah, there are games like I played a fair bit of Persona Q a few years ago, and that's very similar to the Etrian Odyssey games where the bottom screen is an integral part of like you drawing the map as you make it. And that would just be Mm. not feasible on a on a switch it might be doable if you're playing it uh through yeah through portable mode but even then you you have to use your big fat fingers instead of a stylus it's like less precise it's yeah there are there are a lot of things on the 3ds that just can't be done anywhere else and it's a little bit of a shame that that's kind of that whole experiment seems like it's done now um yeah, I, know, well, I, I mean, I would I'd view it as more more of an ex, more than an experiment because what the 3ds sold over seventy million units or that sort of thing. So true, and that was, was more of an extension of the DS idea as well. So yeah. I, I guess it had a fair bit of time in the sun. To be fair, 
Yeah, definitely. And I totally agree that, yeah, there are a bunch of games which are only made possible or as good as they are by virtue of the two screens or using the 3DS's full capabilities and that sort of thing. And Bowser's Inside Story is a classic example of that. It uses the two screens exceptionally well with Bowser largely playing on the top screen, the Mario Brothers largely on the bottom screen. There's touchscreen commands and that sort of thing. So when it was first announced as being remade for 3DS... I was disappointed. I know there were plenty of others disappointed, thinking, oh, why not Switch? Why would you bother putting it on the 3DS? Uh." But playing playing it again and playing the 3DS remake of Bowser's Inside Story, if you were to take that game and modify it so to be playable on the Switch, it would be made a lesser experience Mm. um, by, by the fact of only having the one screen. Yeah, I've kind of felt the same way when it was announced, just because... I don't want to play my 3DS. That's old. But, like, mm. yeah, it's... You couldn't... It, I guess it's kind of similar to the the World Ends With You Switch version where it's fine, but everybody I know who played it on DS then played it on Switch kind of found that the lack of, you know, dual screen, touch screen sort of setup and mm. made the game a worse overall experience. Not bad, but just it was clearly not designed for a controller and a screen. It was designed for a controller and a touchscreen and another screen. It's just, yeah, absolutely. You just can't yeah. quite do that on, on the new systems as, as amazing as they are. Hmm. Cool. Well, on that note, I think we'll bring this uh, this lovely episode to an end. Uh, if you're interested, we've got all the games we've been talking about. We've each got uh, yeah full written reviews that go into probably a little bit more detail than we did here. So give those a read on the site, books.net. It's like books, but with a V. Um, yeah, if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, I'm at Stephen Impson. Uh, Chris is at Bibby Boy. I'll put all of the the Twitter handles in the show notes on the website everywhere. Just because spelling out Twitter handles is boring and no one needs to do that. Um, yeah. Uh, until then, I hope you've had a, a lovely time listening to us. I hope you've had a lovely time talking with me, Chris. I've had a lovely time talking with you. Um, it's always a lovely time, Stephen. Oh, that's lovely of you to say. Thank you, Chris. Um, but yeah, until next time, uh, we'll catch you around. Ah. Uh, uh, I, don't know, I need a different round pun. Catch a round like like the inhabitants of Bowser's Inside Story after they have inhaled too much stuff and become round. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah. Catch you later, everyone. Bye. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>